going to talk about uh, Dark Shadows. And uh, do we have any Dark Shadows fans here? Yeah. All right. So we're going to try to bring these two disparate groups together over the course of this evening. Uh, now, I have not, like many of you, I have not seen Dark Shadows, but I've heard the, the music that Danny wrote for the film. And I, I think uh, for a lot of people who've seen the trailer for this film, they might uh, get the impression that it's an all-out comedy. If you listen to your music, it's a really powerful, uh, creepy horror score. So uh, maybe you can dispel or, or give us a clear view of what we might expect from the film. Is it is it uh, more of a horror movie, more of a comedy, or how does that affect your music? It's more of a comedy, but you know the way Tim normally likes to play comedy is to play it straight. And uh, but there is quite a bit of melodrama. So. The first uh, eight and a half minutes of the movie is a prologue, which is extremely melodramatic. I mean, people, you know, suicides off of cliffs and, uh, you know, the setup for it. So, in other words, it's not comedy in the sense of like, um, ah, you know, it's, we're not talking about Judd Apatow. It's not that kind of comedy. It's, it's comedy through Tim Burton lens of very quirky characters. And the comedic part of the story, of course, is Barnabas Collins returning 200 years later to 1972. Um, so uh, his, when we see him in the past, it's not funny. And when we see other people's past, you know, he's dealing with it very dramatically and seriously. But the interfacing of this uh, 18th century character in 1972, of course, lends itself to a lot of ridiculous situations, which Tim has a lot of delight in. So when you uh, start looking at this film, what was something that you keyed in on that, that kicked off your ideas for the music? Well, I don't know. I just look at the movie and come up with ideas. Uh, the, it, I knew very soon that, you know, obviously people thrusting, being, you know, suicides and murders off of cliffs, that that would all be very dramatic, the music. What I didn't know was what the uh, other part of the film would be. And, Tim was pretty specific that we want, he wanted to keep it small. And so we talked about certain references, and uh, uh, one of them was a movie called Legend of Hell House, which we both really liked the score for. It was all electronic. Um, the other was, uh, well, the Hammer Horror films that we grew up in. And um, of course, the original music to the Dark Shadows TV show, which I didn't know, but uh, Tim sent me uh, two or three cuts from, and I really, really liked it. Um, I believe his name was Colbert, yeah. and um, uh, it was really interesting music. So I actually uh, took a few elements from there and incorporated it into the score. Um, gave him credit too in the cue sheets, but uh, uh, but the idea of using the vibes and the bass flute and the bass clarinet as solo instruments for a lot of the score came from the inspiration of uh, the original TV music. Now you're, I know that obviously you're a fan of horror and that was something that was a big inspiration for you growing up, so, uh, but you were not uh, aware of Dark Shadows growing up? Did you have any exposure to the original series? Yeah, I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> I, I remember when it came on. Now the difference between, because I was just watching Tim Burton and uh, Johnny Depp talking about how much they were fans of it, but I also realized that they were fans of reruns, because Johnny's 10 years younger than me, so when he was... 13 or whatever, 14, he, he would have been watching reruns. So they were much deeper into the mythology and probably better stuff to look at. When I started watching it, it was just out. 
and it was like, oh, a gothic, you know, vamp there's vampires, but there was no blood. So I tuned it in two, three weeks in a row. I ran home, I was very excited, and there's no blood. And for me, if there's no blood, there's no entertainment, and there's no entertainment, I'm not going to watch anymore. It was romantic, and for me, at whatever, 14 years old, romance was the absolute antithesis of anything I ever wanted to see on the screen. Um, I lived around the block from the Baldwin Hills Movie Theater in uh, right on, uh, well, it's just off of La Cienega and the Coliseum uh, there, and uh, it's now a bank, but um, that, that was my my church and where I worshipped every weekend. And so for me, it was all about, you know, the horror movies. And uh, so I just have to say, you know, I feel bad that I wasn't more of a fan of the original Dark Shadows, but romance is not what 13, 14 year old boys in that period wanted to see. We wanted to see vampires sucking blood and copious quantities, hopefully, and uh, in the most gory fashion possible. So it just, um, at the time, unfortunately, just didn't have enough gore. Now you've scored uh, about every genre of film, but uh, as a horror fan, do you get more of a kick out of, of scoring horror films? You've done The Wolfman, th this, uh, you haven't done a no, huge number. I haven't number. really done any horror films. I mean, Wolfman, I scored it as a romance. It was really, <clears throat> the score was a very romantic score. Um, as is uh, Dark Shadows is more of a dark romance, and they're both actually related on many levels. Tragic romance is what those scores, the melodies of those scores are about tragic, doomed characters. And uh, so neither one is really a horror film. You know, there's a bit of horror in, in uh, Wolfman, and you know, there's some action uh, stuff there was, but it, you know, what I loved about doing it was it was doomed Romance is what I love writing for. Doomed characters are, they're fun. How about what, Nightbreed? Is, is, would you say, is there any score, film you scored that you'd say was a straight horror film? I guess Nightbreed would probably be the closest, but I just haven't gotten the opportunity, and most horror films out there don't require much score. You know, you're really doing a lot of tension. And uh, probably the two things that are the most boring for me as a composer is, well, the one genre that I simply can't do at all is romantic comedy. I just don't know what to do with them. I, I did a few early on in my career, and it almost made me suicidal. <laughs> because if it's contemporary characters in a modern romance, I just have no idea what music would possibly or could possibly play for them. There's nothing that I have in my repertory that relates to that. But the other, oddly, is horror because most horror films just wants long, long, suspenseful chords, and you know those, that's, those are the things you can write in your sleep. It's really, really easy to write a long, long, long cue, building, building, building with dissonant strings, leading up to the big shock scare sound that's going to end it. So if that's what it is, I mean, it might be fun to watch, but it's not something I'm like crazy about wanting to do because it's boring. Now. Obviously, there's been good horror films, and you know some that I'd look at and that I would love to do. Um, and uh, you know, if for, you know Guillermo del Toro ever calls me, you know, on a real horror film that he's doing, of course I would say yes in a quick second, because it would be like really, it would be really interesting and probably have a great score. But as a genre, it's not one that I like go after for that reason, because uh, so many of the scores for so many horror films are so interchangeable. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the character of Barnabas 
Collins in this film and Johnny, how Johnny Depp portrays him. And you've worked, you know, obviously you've worked with Tim Burton on a, a number of films, and because of that you wound up scoring a, a number of films that feature Johnny Depp, and you know him personally. So how do you sort of react to him um, in particular in this film? Does it, do you score from the point of view of character when you're working on a film like this? I don't know. I mean, I just for me, it's fun watching Johnny grow. Um, it's interesting that Sunday I did a concert at Royce Hall where they were playing uh, live music from Edward Scissorhands, and they, they did live uh, in sync to a couple of scenes. And hearing Johnny talk then, as opposed to last night while I was at the premiere of Dark Shadows, I was just noticing how wonderfully he's uh, matured his voice. I mean, he's really developed a beautiful, rich voice that he didn't have. And uh, in fact, uh, just also the other night I was watching a little bit of him in Gilbert Grape, and um, he sounded like a kid. And um, that was 19 years ago, but uh, he developed this, this richness of his voice. It doesn't just happen. And um, so that, that's kind of remarkable, because his voice as Barnabas and his last few characters, and his voice in Sweeney Todd, it's really a beautiful voice. Yeah. Well, uh, what do you guys uh, have in common besides Tim Burton? Anything? Yeah, I mean, he used to steal guitar picks from my road cases. <laughs> um, when Oingo Boingo uh, was rehearsing, um, we used to hire out a rehearsal space, and they used to rent a little room with his band uh, in the same space, and they were, like, broke, and they would steal strings and picks from our cases. He confessed to me later. Really? Yeah. So this was be before you guys worked together at all? Oh, yeah. We were stealing from together. Awesome. Has he ever made, you know, recommends no, for that? never has. He's completely <laughs> unrepelled that over him. I know. I do. Uh, you've done now 14 films with Tim Burton? Well, 14 and a half. I mean, I'm in the You're middle of Frank and Weenie now. So, Frank and Weenie. Um, yeah. Any Frank and Weenie fans? Uh, what would you say it's, has kept that relationship going for so long? And did you, when you met him, did you get a sense that you guys had some, you know, shared core values that, that might uh, work for a long-lasting working relationship like this? Well, we grew up on the same movies, for sure. I mean, we were both movie nerd kids and uh, saw all the same horror films. So when we met, and uh, he, you know, I learned that Vincent Price was his idol, and Peter Lorre was mine, and that kind of defined our relationship for the next uh, 26 years, because uh, as you know, Vincent Price was always the sadistic master, and Peter Lorre was always the tortured one. And that kind of defines us for a quarter century now. <laughs> but you guys actually disagree about things, and, and it's, it's, it's not struggle. disagreeing. Sometimes it can be torturous trying to figure out to help him find the journey of what kind of music will work for him in his film. So it's not about arguing or disagreeing over a piece of music, because we've actually never done that. Um, but finding it can be really torturous sometimes, because start out with his movies, it's just not obvious what to play. A lot of experimenting, and he doesn't often know how he feels about it until I'm into the process and really working on the music, and then he begins to develop his own sense of what he needs the music to do. So sometimes it's easier than others. So what was the toughest with him to do? Um, well, I mean, like Big Fish was surprisingly tough. You know, did, I did a lot of music 
trying to find what the heart of that, musically, the heart of that one was. Um, Dark Shadows was really difficult. Um, Alice in Wonderland was tough, surprisingly. And um, so you just never know. I'm moving to movie, I never know what to expect. Um, sometimes they're just really easy. Uh, Edward Scissorhands, you know, was just real easy. The first thing I thought of. And um, same with Mars Attacks, I actually uh, heard the whole theme in my head while I was watching rough cut of the film, but just an animatic of the opening titles. <laughs> the the Affleck duck in the audience. Animatic would just be like a really crude 2D rendering of the way it's going to look in the future, but all I needed to see was that, and I had to help have them stop the screening, and I went out with the tape recorder and made a bunch of notes really, really quickly, because I had the whole thing in my head, and I didn't want to forget it. So that was about the easiest, and uh, I would say Big Fish was probably the hardest. Is there something you see in every one of his films that is consistent, that, that is, appeals to you? Well, I mean, uh, no, there's always something different. I mean, when, he, when there is a villain, he loves his villains, and um, I love to write music for the villains, you know, because the villains are always the more interesting people. Uh, and um, or the anti-heroes, or whatever you want to call it. But I don't really know. He, you know, he writes interesting, I mean, he directs interesting things, and so interesting things are more interesting to put music to. And he usually gives me a very long leash in terms of like what he'll allow me to do. Some directors won't let you do music that's just kind of will seem too weird to them. And it's hard to write stuff that's too weird for Tim. There's a, <laughs> that's true. Uh, I saw about 25 minutes of Frank and Weenie actually uh, uh, last week, and there's a great Peter Lorre character in, in Frank and Weenie. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of his name. Anyhow, uh, Victor, who's the little boy and the uh, hero of the movie, uh, he goes to elementary school, or I, I guess it's middle or elementary, it's hard to even tell, but he's got a really weird bunch of classmates, and one of them is a little... A little hunchback. There's a, yeah, there's like, there's a so there's like an eight-year-old Peter Laurie. Eight-year-old Peter Laurie. <laughs> Fantastic. And there's another one that is like a little nine-year-old Boris Karloff. So they're all kind of in his class. All of his classmates are kind of like that. So you've now, how far along are you on that score? And, and it, I mean, are you going to, I don't know if you're going to write specific Peter Laurie <laughs> music no. for that character, but no, not at if all. there is such a thing. I don't actually ever... I try never to write music for the characters if I can avoid it, you know, with a few exceptions. What about, well, what would you say, uh, it, it's a fantastic looking film, it's stop motion, which is another thing that you Black and white fan 3D of. stop motion. It, yeah. The yeah. first last ever in the history. Yeah, that's what everyone has said, the first and last. Uh, black and white 3D stop motion animation. So what's, uh, what's, how does that process of scoring stop motion differ for you? Does it at all? Do you get to yeah. see everything? Yeah, it doesn't finished? make any difference whether it's live or animated to me. Same exact thing. Story's the story. Yeah, but do you have an idea of where you're going to, what direction you're going to go in with Frank and Weenie? Well, yeah, I've already written about half it's the written. score. What's yeah. it like? Because uh, I heard the temp, temp um, temporary music, which you probably never heard. Yeah, I, I have to hear it. You do get to hear it. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain point where I'm watching a, you know, playback the movie and I have to listen to it. I don't like to, but um, I usually have to hear it at least once. And uh, I don't know what it's like. It's just a score. 
Is it, are you going to feature any instruments uh, specifically? No. Is it just just going to be no. orchestra? Okay, nothing interesting. No, nothing interesting here, folks. You can all go home. You've uh, talked about um, how many people in here know who Bernard Herrmann is? Uh, you've talked uh, frequently about uh, loving his music growing up and that he, he's an influence on you. Um, can you talk about him to like the people who might not know who he is and what kind of uh, impression he made on you? Well, he's a composer that I discovered two different times in my life and was my big inspiration because when I was about 12, um, I saw The Day the Earth Stood Still and it was the first time I was aware of film music because up to that point I just assumed the music was just in there, you know, like the film just came made with the music. And um, suddenly I was aware of the fact that the music wasn't just something that came delivered with, with the, the film, it, that somebody created it. <clears throat> and um, it moved me, and so I noticed his name, and then um, he, every time I saw Herman, um, I would know there'd be something special, because then there was the, the Jason and the Argonauts and Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and you know, these were like my favorite movies growing up, and they'd all have these Bernard Herman scores, and they were different. Something set them apart. And um, then l m later, when I became more like a film buff, when I was 17, 18, 19, um, then I started going to the repertory houses and seeing all of Hitchcock's movies amongst everything else, and suddenly, Oh my God! There's Bernard Herrmann, the other side, you know, Vertigo, and Psycho, which I wasn't allowed to see when it came out. I was too young. And uh, <clears throat> um, North by Northwest, and you know, these incredible scores. So it's like there he was again. And now my new favorite movies were Alfred Hitchcock movies, and so he was like there both times. And um, I think the reason I became a fan of film music was because of Herrmann. And you got to adapt Psycho uh, in the remake of that movie. What was yeah, that I didn't like? really do much of anything. I just tried to not touch it. You know, all I did was make tiny little edits here and there. Just, uh, but I didn't want to. I didn't want Bernard Herrmann's ghost walking into my room because he was famously cranky. And um, you know, I just imagine him at the foot of my bed in the middle of the night going, "You asshole." <laughs> What'd you do to my great score? And um, so I tried to be, I, I really dealt with, handled the music as if it were like holy scripture. I, I really did. So I didn't want to really change it. Now you were in a rock band for many years. You're performing in front of screaming crowds. Uh, at what point did you start thinking that film scoring would be something you'd be interested in doing? And, and uh, so what, how do you sort of transition away from, from being a rock star, I would think like most people that would be a, a dream job. They would want to have you know thousands of fans screaming at them as opposed to being in the room writing music. Well, I never thought about it. I mean, being in a rock band was already my second career. I was in a theater group for eight years. And that was my life. And then, um, so suddenly I was in a rock band and then I hadn't thought about scoring a film until Tim Burton asked me to score Pee Wee. I'm doing like a real score. I'd done, with the Mystic Knights, the predecessor to Oingo Boingo, um, there were 12 of us, and we did the score for my brother's film, Forbidden Zone. And so it's just weird how one thing leads to another, because uh, Paul Rubens was a big fan, that's Pee Wee Herman, by the way. He's a big fan of uh, Forbidden Zone, and Tim used to come see the band, Oingo Boingo. So my name came up on their list, but for two different reasons. 
And so when Tim, when they called me in to meet on Pee Wee's Big Adventure, I assumed they wanted songs. I just figured that's why you call someone like me is to write songs. And he said he wanted a score. And I really did ask him outright. I said, why me? And um, he showed me the movie. And I went and I wrote a, um, a demo. I did, did a piece of music on an 8-track tape player and played all the parts and sent a cassette tape. Didn't think twice about it. I figured I'd never hear from them again. And I got a call about two weeks later, and I'd been hired. And I seriously, for a night, considered not taking the job. And I actually told my manager at that time, said, tell him I can't do it. And he said, why? He says, I don't want to fuck up their movie. I don't know how to score a film. <laughs> and um, he said, I've been working on this for two weeks. You, you call him and tell him. Here's the number. And I really thought about it, and I thought about it, and then I just, I think I just didn't have the nerve to make the phone call, which is how I became a film composer. <laughs> So what, uh, what is it about writing for a film that's more fun to you than, than uh, being in a rock band? It's not more fun. Who said it's fun? <laughs> well, what's, what's, particular, what's your favorite part about writing for film? Um, plan, thinking about it before I start and when it's all done. Everything in between is not fun. It's not fun. <laughs> it's really hard work. So what's, what keeps you going? What, what drives you to do it? Um, well, there's always the thought of the next score, and the one that will be like really interesting to be able to like get my teeth into, because there are moments where I feel like I'm really deep, deep in the work, and um, I think even though it's hard, I really enjoy that. Uh, and they're not all like that, but I'm always like looking for you know something that'll let me get my teeth into it. But um, it's not about fun. I mean. I didn't choose even to be a performer, it just kind of happened. And I didn't choose to be a composer, it just kind of happened. But I figured after doing two or three films that I was starting to really get the hang of it. And I felt like I could do it. And then by the time I got to uh, my fifth film, which was Beetlejuice, it's like, well, that was really fun now. Because, you know, Pee Wee was really, I mean, I had a good time doing it. It was, it was interesting. And then the next uh, four were just kind of rough going. And then Beetlejuice, and it's like, oh, I had a great time. That was really interesting. I got to really do some stuff. And then the next four <laughs> were, were a little more difficult, but starting to get more interesting now. Because you know, in the beginning, when I did Pee Wee's Big Adventure, they only offered me comedies, wacky comedies. There was no quirky comedy made in Hollywood that didn't come by me. And I, like I said, I didn't really know what to do sometimes. Um, so I thought, you know, this is going to be limited. But each. Burton film opened up more doors. So Beetlejuice, now I'm offered fantasy films. So okay, that's getting more interesting now. And then my 10th film was Batman. And, and Tim asked me, he said, how could, you're doing like four films between each of my films. Like, what's going on? <laughs> and I said, well, that's the only reason, I, that's how I'm learning how to do this stuff. I've done right. four in between. And I couldn't have done Batman if I hadn't done four again in between. I barely pulled that one off. And um, didn't quite make Edward Scissorhands as number 15. It was the number 14, but I was, it was more or less averaging every fifth film was Tim's, and I was learning as much as I could in between. So what do you miss about performing, or do you miss anything about performing? Well, I mean, uh, it's hard to say. I, you know, the nights where I felt really on were great nights. Um, I think I miss most the, being at the Whiskey Go-Go in the clubs, where it was real close and hot and sweaty. I think that's what I really enjoyed the most about it. But I was never cut out to be uh, a performer for the rest of my life because I, I couldn't bear touring. 
So I love playing, but I hated touring. So well, it's a problem. When you're in a band, that's that's a problem. It's not a good combination. But you went you went all around Africa. So what 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 do you hate about touring? Because we had to play the same things every night. Okay. When you're on a tour in a band, you're, you have to do repetition, and and that for me was a killer. I started to hate my own music after I did a song a certain number of times. So. Um, you know, ultimately you're kind of doomed if that's your psychological makeup. You know, to be in theater or to be in a band, you have to be able to like embrace the same thing every night, or if you're in theater, the same lines. I don't know how stage actors do it. And when I see bands like U2 or the Rolling Stones, or, or I don't know how they do it. Because um, I reached a point where it's like, I never wanted to hear one of my own songs again. And I, I would reach that point fairly quickly. So I was kind of like doomed. You know, for that to be my life. So, how do you feel about taking questions from an audience? I, I'd love to. We're yeah. doing that, right? <laughs> what is your role with Steve Bartek? I see his name on a lot of the releases. Well, when I when I got Pee Wee's Big Adventure, um, I said I'm doing an orchestral score. I'm going to need an orchestrator to uh, you know help me put this all together. And I didn't know where to turn. And I asked Steve, he was, who was my guitarist in Oingo Boingo, I said, have you ever done orchestration? He goes, no, but I took a class at UCLA. I said, that's good enough. So, you know, he became, you know, my orchestrator, and he still is. So is he kind of like the Ferd Groffy to Gershwin? Nice. I don't know. What was he to Gershwin? was his orchestrator, I believe. But I don't know what he did with, for Gershwin, because when you're orchestrating for film, I think it's a very different job than when you were orchestrating um, a piano piece for orchestra for Gershwin, because um, in that situation, now I could be totally wrong, and I'm the shittiest historian, musical historian on the planet, but my understanding is that um, the orchestrators in those days were also like arrangers because um, they would take uh, an elaborate piece of music written for a few instruments and really turn it into a major work. Um, when, I'm writing, when you're writing for film, you have to write every piece of music for every instrument and do a demo of it and play it for the director before it's approved. So when Tim Burton hears a piece of music, everything is there. Every woodwind, every brass, every violin part has to be there. It has to be as close to the final thing that it could possibly be. And, um, in the process of doing that, the arrangement is 100% complete. I don't ever want to or expect in the final orchestration to hear a new note or a new harmony that I didn't write. But there is a lot of breaking it down an organization that still has to be done. Um, Steve may decide um, that I've written a low a, a viola line and written under the violins that it's going to get lost and put some bassoons with it. Um, he may elect uh, to throw a piccolo on top of a... Of a flurry of uh, French horns that I've written. There's still a lot of color and finishing that has to be done, but his job is essentially to take this work and get it orchestrally to speak as close to that piece that the director has approved as possible, because the other thing we don't want is for the director to go, that sounds different, and they will really fast. So, so much of my job is actually formulating a reconstruction of the orchestra before the orchestra. And I, I write that way, and I work out all my parts that way. Um, so I would have been kind of hopeless in Gershwin's era because I, I can't sit and just write a whole score like Bernard Herrmann did either on a piece of paper at a piano, which is all he did. He didn't even need the piano. He could just sit there and write it out. And that's an amazing art in itself. Stravinsky was like that too. Um, I'm hearing everything. 
So I'm definitely a creature of modern times because I can write dense parts, but I'm hearing everything. I'm hearing all of the literally. I have it in my head and I can work it out slowly because I'm playing every note of every piece of music that goes into the film, all the parts, but I'm able to do it slowly. I don't have to play in real time. I could slow it down to half time and then play my parts, get them ready, fix the wrong notes because I'm making a lot of mistakes, tediously go through it and then play it back over and over and over again until finally. I mean, the, the opening piece for Dark Shadows is eight and a half minutes long, but I think I wrote 23 versions of it before Tim finally approved one for the film. So when you think about it, the amount of writing that went into that one piece of music is enough to do two film scores. And so it's a very different art than it might have been certainly Bernard Herrmann's day. Because um, Hitchcock didn't even hear Herrmann's music until they got to the scoring stage and it was all done. It's just a very different animal, but also the job of an orchestrator is very different, I believe, than what I imagine uh, Gershwin, I don't know how much of his arrangement and orchestration he actually did, so that's why I could be dead wrong. But I've heard so many different arrangements of Rhapsody in Blue, it makes me wonder that, like, what was the very first thing that he wrote? I, can I give a more roundabout answer? Uh, that's actually, that's one of the best uh, descriptions of how you work I've ever heard. Uh, great question. Uh, how about uh, going in the, you and the purple shirt? For the last few years, you've had a very excellent working relationship with La La Land Records, with them putting out the extended or complete versions of some of your scores, like the Batman films or the recent Plan of the Apes release. And I was wondering what we could expect from your relationship with them in the future, like more Tim Burton movies or maybe Darkman or even Psycho? I, I don't know, because um, I, they never actually consult me. I, I don't actually have a relationship. I, on, I only find out about the album when it's released. And I go, oh, wow, look, there's an extended score. Cool. Um, so I'm finding out about it pretty much like at the same time you are. And it's always intriguing to me. But I have no idea what they're planning next. It's not going to be Tim Burton work because the box set, I mind that so deeply. I mean, for that thing, uh, we went through boxes and boxes and boxes of demos for three months trying to find every possible unused take that existed. I mean, there, nothing went unturned. I, I was, uh, Melissa, who's here today, where is she? Back there. She, uh, she personally must have listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours of my old tracks and tapes looking for uh, possibly a take of a piece that hadn't been used or a different mix or something like that to use in that. So I think that's been mined as thoroughly as it can, but there's 60 other films out there that, you know, who knows, anything's possible. And Melissa, can I have my other glasses? You know, I came out here in sunglasses because it's daylight, but now the sun's going down. Uh, this gentleman? Yes, you, sir. Oh, hi. I was curious if you could explain how you keep it fresh when you're doing the transition from the composing part to the actually tr tracking part and how revisions come into the way once you are tracking the film. Well, um, keeping it fresh from tracking, meaning the recording? Yes. Well, you've got to look at it this way. In an orchestra, especially, you know, you'll be writing for 10, 11, 12 weeks, and then your recording is three, four, five days. So it's at the very end. And, um, one of the reasons we do these elaborate demos like we're talking about is so all the interplay between the director and myself are, is already done. We've already been through it all. By the time it's playing on the scoring stage, 
It's so expensive to record orchestra, you have to move really, really fast. And you don't want there to be any questions. You know, you want to find, you know, refine the performance, get it to sound right a little bit. Maybe the director might hear something, have a few comments, but you want 90% of your work with the director to be already finished. So the work is done by the time I get to the scoring stage. By the time I get to the scoring stage, it's just very intensive listening to make sure that no weird shit gets in there because <laughs> there is a really awful thing that happens where you get really focused on the French horns are trying to play this very difficult line and they've blown it three times and the fourth time they get it and you're going, yes, like that, but you didn't notice that there's a bad note in the clarinet because you're like so focused on those horns and you go, oh my God, and I'm listening to the mix and I'm going, there's a, there's a B flat instead of a B natural clarinet. It must be just a mistake, that take. Let's go back another take. It's there. Go back again. It's there. Oh my God. How is it there this whole time? That's because we're, I was really focusing on something else. So the, the point is in the recording, you just have to really listen. It's just like trying to keep your ears. And it, I don't know how, there's no way to stay fresh. It's, it's really intense. It's very intense. I used to say that uh, the only thing I could think of that was more intense than being on stage for two hours with Oingo Boingo is going through like six or seven hours with an orchestra where I really feel like I've done nothing but sit in one spot, concentrate on the music, and feel like I lost a pound. <laughs> Probably gray matter. Uh, this woman with the glasses right back here in the corner. Yes. What advice would you give to someone who's trying to compose music themselves? That's a really hard one because I'm, I'm a really bad example. You know, I, I generally say don't follow me to anybody because first off, I would say study and work hard because um, I think it's better to study than to do it the way I did it, which is falling in and then learning as you go. Um, but secondly, I'm a bad example because the first 10 years, I considered it like an, an evening job. I had a day job. I was in a band and I really didn't care what anybody thought of my music. And ultimately that worked to my advantage, but like when I wrote Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I really expected the score to get thrown out by Warner Brothers. I thought they'd hear it and dump it immediately. And so um, not caring what anybody thought other than Tim, for example, worked well for me, but it's hard for me to tell other people, don't give a shit. <laughs> Just uh, do what you think and don't care what anybody else thinks. It doesn't really work that way. So I don't really have any good advice other than you know, really, really, really hard work. I notice in uh, a lot of your scores, like Batman and Batman Returns, you use, you use the organ a lot. Now, what made you use such a complex instrument? I mean, Mozart called it the king of instruments, and it's not something that is normally heard in a, in a film score. What made you come up with that, to use that? I mean, there's no reason. It was just like, you know, I wanted a big, dark color, and Bernard Herrmann used the organ really effectively a number of times. And so, it's kind of like whatever Herrmann did, was immediately like, that's good for Herman, it's good for me. So I, I think, you know, often when I'm doing stuff, I'm, I'm invoking moments of Bernard Herman, and, and that definitely was the case there. Uh, this gentleman, right back there in the black t-shirt? Yes. No, you. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> well, there's two men with black t-shirts. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's a uh, two-part question. Um, I got the music box today, thank you so much. Um, thank you. Are you going to come out with another album of a music for a darkened theater? Well, I mean, there's no plans to do that. Uh, I don't know. You know, if somebody asked me to do another compilation, I probably would. Um, it's always kind of painful for me listening to my old stuff. 
um, having put so much work into that box set, I don't think I'd want to do it right away because that was like this. That was like playing through my whole life. And um, but maybe like if it was like another year goes by and somebody asked, I'd probably think about it. Uh, the yeah, other man with the black shirt. Sorry, yeah. second question, real quick. Any talks of a, a collaboration with Pixar's uh, Dia de los Muertos movie? They, you know, Pixar, Pixar has not asked me ever okay. Thank to work you. with them, so Thank you. what can I say, someday. <laughs> you know that uh, when I used to play Gamelon out at CalArts, um, I was bugging, because I did for three years, I snuck in there and I played in the uh, Indonesian music department there playing the Gamelon. It turned out that the animator across the room being really bugged by all that Gamelon music was John Lasseter. <laughs> and I'm not sure he's ever forgiven me. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite scores by you is uh, Standard Operating Procedure, and I was curious if it was intimidating at all, that project, working on that after the amazing partnership between Errol Morris and uh, Philip Glass over the years. Yeah, it was intimidating uh, because, you know, Philip Glass has made such a humongous imprint, both not only on Errol's films, but documentaries. I mean, there almost can't be documentary music without Philip Glass, so, you know, his music is perfect all the time. It, it lends itself to that medium so well. So it was really hard uh, starting and trying to neither avoid Philip so much that I'm just throwing the anti-Philip score, because I didn't want to do that, but yet I'm trying to not my, let myself sound like knockoff Philip Glass. But yet when you're doing a documentary, you are falling into a repetitive vibe. You have to create music that can go under narration, that will go on and repeat itself for long periods of times and in a way that at a certain point, it's hard to avoid that. So I tried to find a balance. Um, Philip Glass is one of my favorite composers. Uh, there's nobody alive right now that I have more admiration for. So I also didn't want to do anything that he would, you know, give me shit for or think that I was like ripping him off. So I, I really was trying to be sensitive to him and his music, trying to feel like I wasn't ripping him off. But yet, I can't say that he wasn't a huge influence. Uh, I'd like to say too, uh, uh, Philip Glass is a big fan of, of Danny, and uh, you know I talked to him for this book, and I had talked to him many times before, and actually on a couple occasions was trying to get some quotes from him about other composers, which was sort of like pulling teeth. Uh, but when I got him talking about Danny, he was very enthusiastic. He's very admiring of uh, Danny's concert work, or you know, was really impressed by uh, Serenata Schizophrenia. Uh, and really love well, that. When he told me that, that, that was the uh, highest compliment for me ever, was uh, you know, getting anything, whether it was true or half true or he was just being polite, it felt really good. Um, you, sir. Yes. Uh, as you've made the shift from writing songs to writing scores, have you felt a, there's been a major difference in the way that you approach your composition? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, right from the beginning in Pee Wee, um, I had to abandon song structure because um, I didn't really want to do that kind of scoring that felt like it had a verse and a chorus. Um, I really turned backwards to try to think of all the films I'd grown up on, you know, whether it be Herman or Franz Waxman or Max Steiner or Nino Rota, who's a big influence, or Marconi, and um, go, how did they write? So uh, I, I tried to like really abandon the idea that I'd been a songwriter. Uh, you, sir, with the sunglasses. <coughs> Unwanted, you released a new original song, speaking of songs. Can we uh, expect something like that in the future, or was that a one-time thing? You know, it's just, if a director asks me, I'll do a song. It's just really simple. 
Um, I have no problem with it. It's just Timor. I'd given him a song, and he was like, no, 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 it's not right, it's not right. And then, like, I was in the middle, oh, I was already on another movie. I was with Guillermo on Hellboy, and then Timor Cole says, I want that song. And it's like, oh, great, how do I record this? I'm in London scoring. So I tried to put it together for him, and uh, I was doing the vocals in between recording sessions in, uh, of Hellboy at, uh, at Abbey Road, and I was recording the score all day, and then I'd go in another room with a microphone and, like, do the vocals. And then, then he told me he needed it in Russian as well. <laughs> And that, I realized, was just pure sadism on Timor's part. But I, I did it as best I could. See, if you miss Oingo Boingo, all you had to do is ask him to write a song and be a film director. So. Uh, I've got a few questions from online. I will ask uh, more questions from the audience. But uh, uh, Paul Stefano from Ecuador wants to know if this is your first or second experience scoring a vampire movie. Huh. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> is there any other? Um, I think so. First. Uh, <laughs> Beck Warner has two questions, and I don't know where he or she is from, uh, but uh, one of them is any special rituals you do to get into the composing mindset? <laughs> Yoga? <laughs> Drinking? No, it, it's hard, actually, you know. Um, Really, sometimes just a shower. <laughs> Not such an elaborate thing, but it helps. Uh, and do you think the value of a film score has increased or decreased or stayed the same in modern film, I guess, since you started working? Well, I think all of those. It's increased and decreased because uh, every year, you know, when I start at a certain point, I'm going, God, all these scores are just really nothing but. Uh, supplementing sound effects and they're all interchangeable and then a great score will come along and go wow that was amazing and then that rattles the whole theory of scores are disappearing so you know it's just like probably no different than any other time there's just a lot of stuff out there and the most the biggest and most commercial films are the least demanding in terms of what goes in there but then there's always a lot of really interesting stuff somehow manages to get through and you've got really talented composers like you know Alexander Desplat and others out there that are just doing amazing work so um, you know it keeps going uh, and Heather Atkins if I can discern this what what gives you inspiration for each song uh, for different films maybe she means score uh, and how does music come to you uh, <laughs> I think I can get more specific. I think that's about as easy as asking a writer or, or you know, and I mean, it's like, what gives you ideas, ideas for your stories? <laughs> Pardon me? What gives, where do you get your ideas? I don't I know. That's the classic writer yeah. question. No idea. Uh, okay, Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> uh, uh, how difficult is it for you to just watch a movie without, um, you know, thinking of, of different ways that you would have scored a certain piece? I mean, if I'm watching another film? Yes, another film. Well, it's hard because I'm hearing the score. So if I'm hearing the score, I really can't think simultaneously of like what I would be doing differently. Um, sometimes I'll see a film that I don't end up working on, and I'll watch it once without score, and I'll have certain thoughts, and then it'll come out, and I'll go, oh, that's completely different than I thought. Um, but it's hard. You know, at the end of the day, I, I listen to a score in a film, and just like you, I either like it or I don't like it, but I don't necessarily go, I would have done this, or I would have done that. I just usually think, no, that was really good, or yeah, that was so-so. Uh, you in the red shirt and beard, right there in the back. Sorry? Uh, at the, you get writer's block? I get writer's block every time. 
I can expect writer's block. And um, it's only, the only thing that breaks writer's block is deadlines. Because I'd still be working on Peewee's Big Adventure <laughs> if I didn't have to turn it in because of writer's block. So I always get writer's block, and then the deadline eventually forces me to start writing some music. And uh, whether I feel ready or not, you know, I have to do it. And uh, I think that's what, to be a film composer, that's kind of ha how you have to be wired. You, know, you have to be able to work in increments of four, six, eight, ten, maybe twelve weeks, and that's all you get. Uh, this woman in the black shirt. Hi, um, I was wondering, sorry, behind the speakers over here. Um, I was wondering, since your first time working with Tim Burton on Pee Wee, how has your process changed in the last 14 years with him? And are you superstitious about anything around working with Tim in particular? It hasn't really changed. Um, you know, he, he can't really verbally express himself. He generally does it with body language. If I'm playing a piece of music and he's pulling his hair, it's a bad sign. If he just seems to be looking intently, that's a good sign. Um, for five years, I lived at Malibu, and he used to come out, and um, I'd serve him a martini. He'd sit and watch the sun go down and then go in. It's like, I figured that was a really good thing, but now he's usually like, not taking the martini anymore. <laughs> but what if I could? I'd always be you know, at the beach with a martini before listening to music. I found that was very helpful. But it hasn't changed in 26 years, it really hasn't. Uh, you, right there on the dress. Hi. Hi. Um, okay, what was my question? Oh, yeah. What, is your, what do you feel is your most overrated um, movie score? And what do you feel is your most underrated movie score? Um, well, I think Batman's probably my most overrated movie score. You know, I think I did an okay job. I didn't think, you know, at the time I felt like I was just barely hanging on for dear life. You know, and people tell me they think it's really a good score, and I go, all right, yes, I think it's okay. But I don't think anything is underrated. I don't necessarily think I do a good job every time. And sometimes, you know, people go, they think they just don't really like a score. I'll go, no, maybe you're right. Maybe it wasn't very good. I don't know. So I'm not sure I have an underrated score. Also, I don't know whether I would know what was a score that everybody hated because I'm not, I don't personally really privy to that you, information. Pardon me? Like personally for you, what do you feel like, oh, I wish more people noticed this movie score? Okay, well, yeah, there's movies that come out that are gone in a quick second that I worked really hard on and liked, you know, and they go, oh, I wish, I hope people find this music. And certainly amongst them, very up, high up there would be standard operating procedure, because that was a movie that really nobody saw when it came out. And, um, but I, I was really proud of you know, the work with Errol. I loved working with Errol. He was great. Um, another one was, you know, The Wolfman came out and was gone in like 48 hours. And, uh, but again, I, I really loved working with Joe Johnston. You know, but the, there was a common link between Joe Johnston and The Wolfman and Errol Morris in uh, Standard Operating Procedure, which is they try to exert no influence or control. They just said, write, and I just got to write. And uh, everything I wrote, they were just like, that's fine, that's great. <laughs> really? I had to, you want me to do like 20 more versions? No, it's fine, fine just like it is. So there are pieces that I just felt like, I was almost like if I was writing a concert piece uh, for like uh, an, orchestra, an orchestral uh, piece, like I wasn't writing for film. Both of those uh, were kind of like, I just felt like I was just writing and it just happened to be going into a film because I was getting no instruction from the director. And not that I wasn't getting instruction, but I was getting no input pulling me in any direction 
or trying to modulate what I was doing in any way, shape, or form. So it's just kind of like, I'm just writing. Like when I was writing Serenata Schizophrenia, I just felt like I'm just writing. Or the ballet I did for Twyla, which is still unrecorded, which I'm trying to correct if I can in the next year, because I, I don't feel like a work is done until it's recorded. But, um, so maybe it's the Twyla Tharp Ballet, because that's not unrecorded and almost nobody's heard that. So maybe that's the top of the list. Hey, what's going on? Hi. Uh, you, you, have, you have a guy who holds up his hand for you? I'm <laughs> holding the camera. Service. I can't do both. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyways, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for the music. It's like candy for my imagination. My pleasure. Second of all, I want to ask, uh, if somebody made a biopic about your life, let's presuppose in that world, but you weren't allowed to score it. Somebody else has to do it, but you get to pick the composer. Who would that be? Uh, Bernard Herrmann's Ghost. He agrees. All right, I guess I'm done. Who's done it? But maybe if he wasn't around, maybe Alexander or uh, Tommy Newman or, uh, you know, one of those guys. Do a good job. Pardon me? Uh, sure, you did the work of holding up your hand for that guy. I'm not hearing you. Oh, I fell in love with you in The Simpsons. Everyone hears about film scoring. You did The Simpsons, you're God, that is awesome. That, that, that was just you know, a, Simpsons was just a lucky break. But was it easy, that's my question. Was it a lucky break, was it easy? Did you do it on a bar now? It, it took, was one day of work. Yes, that's what I wanted to know. It's internal. I met with Matt Groening and he showed me um, a pencil sketch version of the titles. And he said, what do you think? And I said, if you want something that's really retro, um, uh, I'm the guy, like something maybe that Hanna-Barbera piece that never happened. But I said, if you want something contemporary, I'm not the guy. He says, no, retro, let's do something really retro. I had it written in the car before I even got home. I got home, I quickly played the, the demo piece, sent it in, he says, yeah, it's good. That was it. Yeah. Tightened up a few moments and we recorded it like a couple weeks later. It was like literally the qu quickest thing I've ever done. And I didn't expect anybody to see it, because I figured, this is so weird. You know, it's one of those things they'll, they'll do one season, but they'll only do three episodes, and they'll get canceled, and, and that'll be that. Uh, you with the camera. Um, you've done a lot of superhero films, Hulk and Spider-Man, and, and superhero scores have, you know, have this place among fans and people. Uh, what, what do you think makes the best superhero score, and what do you think about superhero scores today versus you know, yesteryear? I don't really know. Um, I mean, John Williams kind of really established the kind of the tone of what makes a big score like that, certainly with Star Wars, and even though it's not a superhero thing, Superman, that was the first kind of superhero movie, wasn't it? I mean, modern superhero yeah, yeah. movie. But other than that, I don't know. Um, I I'm, myself, I'm a kind of believe in melody. You know, you use a melody and you kind of make it stick. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to comment on other people's work in, in that genre. Some of it's good, some of it it's okay. But uh, I don't know what makes it work. It's just like any film, you know, just a good score is a good score. Uh, you. Hi. It's hard to meet you. My question is, I once heard that Aaron, somebody asked Aaron Copeland why he stopped doing movies. He said because the phone calls had stopped. In this world, we're always changing, uh, especially with dubstep, electronic music, with Skrillex running, winning three Grammys and incorporating it in movies. Now, you have 
your well-known uh, composer, how do you keep in competition with the young film composers who are coming out today and, and tomorrow to the people who you're in competition with, like Hans Zimmer and, and all John Williams, all those people, how do you keep yourself in, in, in work? Because that's the number one thing, keeping ourselves, because I'm a film student, uh, film composing. So how do you keep it, how do you keep it going without the help of your, your manager and your agent? It's a good question. I don't know really if there's a good answer. It's probably why I never take a vacation. I do feel like if, you know, if I went away for a year, I'd never get another job again. But um, I think you know, when you're a composer, you just keep trying to work and you hope every four or five years you get something that really lets you stand out and that that'll fuel you for another three or four or five years um, because every score is not going to stand out and um, as much as you want them to and you'd love them to. So, um, you know, I look at the, my heroes like Jerry Goldsmith and people like that. You know, they, he reinvented his career a number of times. And just when they thought he was down for the count, you know, he'd come out with Poltergeist and then he'd come out with um, Fatal, I mean, uh, Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct, you know, which at the point, ah, he's already like history. Basic Instinct that everybody's doing score, it sounds like Basic Instinct for So, you know, it's just, he was lucky enough to get these things. No, no, I mean, pure talent, but lucky enough to get the vehicles with which to suddenly make he's back and um, he's fully vital and with any of us we just have to hope every four or five years that we get one of those that keeps us in the consciousness of uh, directors who are looking for composers otherwise yeah we do lose our place and I will get steamrolled over and I expect it to happen every single year and um, you know I'm lucky to be working still. Do you take interns? <laughs> I, I don't thank you. Though. You're not wearing a black shirt. Yes. Aside, aside from the collaboration that you did with Ecoplum, how much involvement are you going to have in the Forbidden Zone 2 music? I wasn't aware that I had a collaboration. <laughs> the music that they used for Polly's dance, did they, they had your name on it. All right. <laughs> Let's get the lawyers in here. Like he, he, no, 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 he's my older brother, and if he says that we're collaborating on something, you know, we're going to collaborate, then, then whatever he said, it is. It's fine with me. I don't really know what he's got going or, or what the nature of that is going to be. Um, you know, like I said, he's my older brother, and um, I defer to him there, so uh, older brother's always right. <laughs> Uh, you in the green shirt there, yes. Microphone? I don't need it. Um, <laughs> I, I forget, I think it might have been the line to uh, the first music for Garden Theater, but I read somewhere that uh, you said working on Freeway was a lot of fun because it was the first improvised score that you did. Well, yeah, that was an exception there. I said it's, not always, it's never fun, but it, it, sometimes it is fun. Freeway was fun. I had three days to write the score. And so... <laughs> That's fun. No money, three days, whatever you do, they have to use. Could you, could, could you elaborate that, a little more on fun. The, the, what, it, what it means to do it just, I mean, is it just, you just improvised with a bunch of guys or just yourself? No, well, I came up with ideas at home and I brought them in and then I said, let's just jam on this. And then there was a, one point where I had everybody switch instruments and uh, do that kind of thing. You know, it was just for fun. It was just like a total, like a, just for the pure pleasure of it. You know, I wasn't getting paid a penny. And uh, sometimes, there, every now and then, I'll do a freebie, you know, sometimes for my brother or for Matthew Bright. The, guy, the director of Freeway was my best friend in high school, by the way. So it was kind of like he was doing a movie. It's like, sure, you know, I'll book together some music. Well, it worked really well. Thanks. Uh, you, sir, in the corner in the black shirt. 
you. I'll take it. I'm here. Um, real quickly, uh, I'm, I'm going to out my age. The very first compact disc I ever bought was the Batman score. I know you don't like it, but that was I, I my first. I didn't like it. I just. But I was I, so I, mad I, I just a bat dance. I had to wait for the score to come out. Okay. So. Um, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm not putting it down. I, I don't mean I don't like it. I just, to me, you know, it, it was a real struggle. And so at the end of it, I just feel like I, I survived uh, kind of an ordeal of fire more than created something, you know, uh, I don't know. Some... I understand what you mean. Um, it was just, my, it was the first purchase I went to a store and bought. And then my one of my best friends I've known for 20 years, we met over you and, so to speak. And uh, our dream project was you and Tim doing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But that was in 1994, we thought that. So, so I've been a lifelong fan, so all the good questions have already been asked, but the ones I'll come up with, um, I heard the Green Hornet theme, um, and I wish you could have finished it. Um, so that's just my, I don't know if you want to comment or not, but I just loved it and I wanted to tell you that. Well, and I, I, didn't, I didn't write anything for the Green Hornet. There was, a, there was a demo that didn't, I thought I heard that, anyway. No, 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 uh, that, that's, uh, I, I was slated to work on it, and it was just one of those things where the schedules moved, and it was actually because of Iris or Iris um, that I had to bow out of it because the point where he moved his schedule was right when uh, you know after two years of work Iris was coming to uh, fruition and I had to give them my full attention and, and unfortunately I'm not set up like uh, most or many composers are in Los Angeles to do two movies at the same time or two projects and I just I kind of can't so I reluctantly had to you know say goodbye to the director and, and there's just nothing I could do because when schedules move schedules move. Then uh, I guess the question is what was it like working with John Hughes and Rodney Dangerfield because I can't think of anything uh, better that I can ask right now. So John Hughes was very much a gentleman. He was he was real sweet and um, you know I just did that. Another real easy piece of work was uh, Weird Science. You know just talked with him. I um, wrote it in the car, hung up the phone and. It was like I was all charged up from talking with him, and I thought that was cool. And I just had it and ran home and got it down real quick and real easy. And Rodney Dangerfield, I didn't really work with him, you know. You know, by the time a composer comes on a film, the actors generally kind of are gone. So we had that one moment with Oingo Boingo on stage where we all just kind of met, and Robert Downey Jr. was mixing the sound. Uh, he was the sound man who then made the feedback that I had to like pretend to hold my ears. Um, and so when I saw him later, he reminded me of that. But I didn't really get to uh, hang out with Rodney. Um, he's you know, a great guy, I'm sure. Uh, we got a couple more online questions. Uh, Erica Estrada, no relation. Yes, uh, would you rather read a story of a film, a script, a screenplay, I'm assuming, or, or watch a rough cut before writing the score? I, I don't write music from the script. I wait till I see the rough cut. I mean, because I've read scripts and come up with music too many times only to be on the film and not one single note of a, my idea survives because there's so many ways to shoot a script. And uh, the, depending on the cinematography, the performance, um, the editing, these are just going to call for completely different scores. So you might think it's going to be one way and then you see it and you go, oh, that's not what I imagined. It's a different, it's faster moving, it's a, it's a different score, it's raw or it's very theatrical and I imagined it being very raw, but it's actually very, very smooth, and now it wants a very different kind of score. So I, I learned to kind of hold my thoughts back until I see some footage. Uh, that you didn't do, which would it be? If there was any film that I didn't do, that could do, that if you I would could have do loved it, to have done, <sighs> even before you were born. No, I mean, the list is endless, you know. I'd kill to do 
uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, or The Godfather, or Lawrence of Arabia, or Citizen Kane, or, um, you know, these are like amazing musical moments that just once-in-a-lifetime things, Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, yeah, I'd love to have done anything with Fellini or Sergio Leone. Um, any one of Fellini's films, just pick any one, and, you know, just, but, you know, it's not going to happen. Richard, are you asking a question? <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, you uh, sit, sitting down, yes. I once read that you attended Pitzer College, and is that true? And if not, um, where did you ever have any formal education or formal training? No, I, I never, I, I snuck into CalArts Indonesian department for a couple of years, but I was never registered there as a student. That's the only, uh, after high school, that's the only thing I ever went back to any schooling for. I, I never had any education beyond uh, making it through the first half of the 12th grade. And I got my credits and took off. Uh, you, on your toes. Yes. Microphone slowly making its way to you. Hi. Hi. I'm a huge fan of everything you do. Um, first off, I'm, I'm curious about your family life, just in that, because uh, I'm a composer as well. And clearly, you have an insanely busy schedule. How do you balance? family life in the middle of all that chaos and I was also curious just what an average busy film day looks like for you well I mean that is a good question to, for people to be aware of when they get into this business because you know you don't get the personal time and I have to I have a seven-year-old right now and um, it's hard to see him while he's awake um, so very often I never see him in the morning uh, because uh, I get up around 10 o'clock 9 30 10 I work until two, pretty much two o'clock every morning. Uh, I'm very nocturnal. Even though I do a lot of stuff in the day, I get more to work at night. So it's hard, it's really rough. I try to like make time at dinner or bedtime to go see him, spend time with him, or tuck him to bed. And um, other than that, um, you know, you just do, you gotta do the best you can, but it's rough. It's not a nine to five job. Thank you. Um, you and the beard and glasses? It's a lot that you took the time to do this. If there's any one thing that I'm going to take the time to do that I actually do enjoy, it's actually this. Well, it's the highlight of a lot of our weeks. Um, I just want to know, what do you listen to when you're in the car, when you're home? What's in your CD player? You know, it, it's shameful how little new music I listen to. But very often when I'm in the car, I'm listening to CDs I've made of the pieces I'm working on. Because I'm still trying to work out a puzzle in my head. And I'm playing one of a dozen fragments of ideas over and over again. I, I have a place in Santa Barbara and I drive up and back. I have a studio there too. And I use that trip to like listen to my own stuff I'm working on and try to clarify what it is that's not happening and, and what's wrong with the theme that feels like it's half cooked and I can't find a B section, that kind of thing. But if I just really want to relax and listen to something, it's going to be, um, I, I have Cirrus radio and I listen to the hip hop station a lot, <laughs> especially on the weekends where there's a lot of DJ action, and if I can, I'll get into that, and, and or um, I, I, a lot of ethnic music, stuff that's very much not like what I'm working on. I'd rather listen to gypsy music uh, if I'm not writing and want to hear something than more orchestral music, if that makes any sense. Something really, really different, but the thing that 
does the most if I'm just going to listen to something else is like hip hop. I think we've got about five more minutes. If that's not true, someone let me know or shoot a tranquilizer dart at me or something. But uh, I think we have time for a few more questions. You, sir. Yeah, I was uh, just wondering. Here's, here comes the microphone. It's coming right behind you. I was just curious how many instruments can you play now? proficiently and um, also since nobody else has asked although I love the scores and I bet the the future ones are going to be the best to come uh, any chance maybe some Halloween Eve you and the guys will get together and no okay. <laughs> that's, that's the easiest question of the evening somebody had to ask yeah I know but they um, did it, it's not going to happen you know when it comes to bands I, I you know I know that a lot of bands have gotten together uh, and done you know whatever it's like but not for me uh, I, the dead should stay dead I like zombies in zombie movies but I don't necessarily like it when bands get back together after you know 20 years and, and do reunions I'm not a big reunion fan and besides the fact um, I sustained a lot of hearing damage from my years uh, 17 years of Loingo Boingo and I would never even one night on stage I feel like I'd be taking six months off of my future hearing at this point so that made it a real easy decision when I finally left I was leaving for good that um, I got to hold on to what I have yet to still to work with, so um, that made it. That, what was the other question? Oh, do we get how many instruments? Do you play? How many instruments? I don't play any instruments well. You know, in the in the Mystic Nights, we are a multi-instrument band. So I played percussion. I played uh, violin was my first. Then I picked up guitar, and then I played trombone. And uh, you know, I could pick up any instrument and learn a couple of tunes on it really easily. But I've never practiced the instrument, and I never became good. So I would learn a, a difficult violin solo with the Mystic Knights, but I'd only learn three pieces, and that's all I played on it. And uh, with the trombone, I played early Duke Ellington music. I used to love that. So I played four or five Ellington pieces on the trombone, but that's all I could play on it. So I, I can't improvise on any instrument, and I don't consider myself a musician by a long shot. So I can get by on guitar. I compose on the keyboard, but like I say, I'm composing I can't fluently play anything I've ever written. So, um, I could, like I said, I, I compose very methodically. Uh, I'm putting in one note at a time, one note at a time, one note at a time. So I'm, I'm really, as I never was able to understand in my own life why I could work for 16 hours a day writing and be very disciplined about that, but I could never practice for an hour <laughs> on any instrument. And uh, it's just something about me and my wiring. I never could practice on an instrument. Uh, and this young lady in the hat. Hi. Um, can, can this works? Yeah. Um, this is coming from a friend in Minnesota who she shares something with you um, on film. She showed me the score she did for you eventually. Or, no, it was a film. Sorry. Uh, anyway, she texted me this. What are your, your thoughts on a Japanese film composer Yoko Kano? She's been called the Danny Elfman of Japan. Oh, have you heard wow. of her? I haven't well, heard of her, so I it can't... It sounds really... like I should check uh, this... Yoko Kano? Yoko Kano. Yoko Kano. I, I, I actually don't know Yoko Kano's work. I don't either. So um, I'll go and investigate. Uh, I know that's, that's why God invented IMDB. <laughs> so I can quickly answer questions like these. And we have one, one more? One more question. So it's gonna be this person who's jumping. See what jumping gets you? Huge fan. I love you so much. Thank you so much Thank for you. doing this. Um, what 
is the deal with Beetlejuice too? Because there was like some talk about that. No one's ever no one? mentioned it to me. They probably won't want to use me anyhow. Okay. I, if it's it's not with Tim, as far as I know, okay. put it that way, because he's never. But then again, I never know what Tim's thinking. So. <laughs> I'm going to take a special bonus last question. <laughs> Let's take three more. Uh, three more. Three more. Three more. Okay. Three more. <laughs> Who is magnanimous? Uh, <laughs> you, sir, in the black shirt. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, first, I want to say uh, thank you, Mr. Elfman. Um, I had a music teacher who told me that music is a gift, so thank you for sharing your gift with us. And um, earlier you mentioned that you got into certain music situations by accident, and I actually got turned on to film scores by you by accident, because I really loved the Batman movie, and I bought the, I was looking to buy the Prince score and actually bought your score by accident. And it just... <laughs> Victory. Justice. And it just opened this gateway to Williams and Horner and everything else for me. So um, I had some stuff back storage or storage back east, and I asked my sister to send me the first soundtrack that I ever owned, which is your Batman soundtrack. And I was wondering if you'd be so kind as to sign it for me. Well, we'll work that out before I go. Okay, thank since you. that's your first score, uh, your gateway earns it. Yes. <laughs> um, you in the white shirt at the very back of the hat. See. <laughs> Uh, I have two quick questions. One, one of the few Tim Burton movies that you did not work on was uh, Ed Wood. Ed Wood. And was there a reason that Tim didn't approach you for that? No, or? I was actually on that. We just had a falling out. Uh, things got pretty intense. And uh, I think at some point, inevitably over a quarter century, we had to have like a, a moment, a nuclear meltdown, and that was our moment. And um, we used to joke that we'd end up like Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock, who also had a nuclear moment, but never got back together. So I'm just grateful that after a year of not speaking to each other, um, we decided to speak to each other. And um, I got a message, would I ever talk to Tim again from my agent, he's back there, and I uh, said, I think so. And I was on a plane the next day for Kansas, where he was shooting a Mars Attacks, and we met in a coffee shop, and just decided never to speak of that previous year again and we haven't and we've had no problems cool uh, and you mentioned gateway drug uh, have you ever considered composing, what's the best one <laughs> have you ever considered composing cla true classical music rather than a film score because people say film scores are the gateway to classical music well I'm trying to write orchestral music um, I wish I could every year but I already have my next piece you know I've done two pieces for not film or well, three with Iris Iris, <laughs> whatever. And, um, um, so um, I, I know what, what I'd like to do next, and I wish I had time every year. It was my goal to do a non-film work every year, but unfortunately some years just doesn't leave me time to do that, so maybe every other year I, I can. But you're, I, I, I wish, I love doing it, and um, I want to do more. Uh, and you, sir, in the bright blue shirt? <laughs> Finally. A lot of your uh, scores that you do with Tim Burton, you know, kind of have a similar flavor to him. You know, you have those like sweeping harmonic minor melodies over, you know, the oompa um, sort of uh, horns and stuff. And then you do uh, stuff like Terminator 4, where someone gets to the credits, they're like, "Whoa, that was Danny Elfman! What the hell just happened?" You know, do you find that like when you have to do something 
that kind of goes from that signature sound that you've developed that a lot of people here are familiar with, is that any harder or is it like more liberating that you have more freedom to do something totally different? No, it's, it's definitely more liberating. My, the, my ha happiest moments are when somebody hears something and they didn't know it was me and they find out it was me. That's great, you know, so like when I did Goodwill Hunting and Milk for Gus Van Zandt, and um, you know, every now and then I'll do something that uh, someone will say, oh, I heard that, I had no idea that was you. That to me, that's my greatest compliment. So, you know, there's no way to get away from the fact that there's certain types of things I fall into. And of course, with the same director on 15 films, there's going to be a certain level of repeat performance. You can't reinvent yourself every score 75 times and not have anything overlap in 75 scores, 75 hours of music, which is more or less what it comes to at this point. But I try and I look for things that will let me stretch out when I can. And that's why I did next three days with Paul Haggis last year. Not many people saw it, but you know, I was really enjoying doing something very, something that I wasn't normally asked to do. And every now and then I'm asked to do something that's not fantasy and not fantastic or not big. And, and um, I really appreciate those opportunities. I've been trying to claw my way down to low budget films you know, um, for years now. And uh, you know, slowly I, I managed to get a few here and there best I can. Uh, there are still soundtracks and CDs and these mighty box sets available at a special sale price uh, at the Warner Brother Boutique. And I want to thank uh, Danny Elfman and Warner Brother. Thank you very much.